Okay, hello and welcome to episode 35 of Dano Says So. I've known today's guest at least 25 years, probably a little bit more, um, starting off as a couple of dirtbag punk rock merchants, you know, and the main dragon of town, probably sharing girl problems or something equally unimportant. Um, we've crossed paths many times in our shared interest in underground music, but the reason we're talking today and the reason I've, I've sought his input multiple times over the last maybe 10, 15 years is that he is one of the more daring, accomplished, and impressive investigative reporters I'm familiar with. Um, Walter Cronkite Award winner, I believe you're an Emmy winner, yeah? Look at you. Yeah, 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 shut up. Um, yeah. Anyway, A.C. Thompson, thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me on. Okay. Um, I was thinking about where to start, how to do this, right? And what occurred to me is there, there are several big, big stories, things that have turned into books, things that have, have uh, ended up in remarkable things. And to give people a little bit of background, it kind of goes The Guardian and The Weekly to ProPublica and uh, Frontline and PBS and things with stops in between, I'm sure. But most of your adult life has been spent in investigative reporting, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the trip. And it's... My story is a little different, and I think it's useful for people to to hear. Is you know, I, obviously, I grew up in the in the punk rock scene, mm -hmm. um, but going to high school, like I had never expected to have a white collar white collar job. Um, I I was trained in vocational school to run a printing press. Okay. And when I was in high school, and when I got out of high school. Growing up in the DC area, I ran a printing press and I printed, I worked for a company that printed magazines. We printed laboratory animal, military okay. hardware. We printed Washingtonia magazine. We also printed the source, the hip hop magazine and a lot of really horrible, insane trade journals. And I just remember being at that job one day and saying, God, this is super boring. I want to actually be the person that writes the stories that are in the magazine, not mm -hmm. just printing them. Um, and a few years later, I ended up going through a program for young people called Youth Outlook in San Francisco, mm -hmm. where I was living at the time. And it was basically like a training program for young people from non-traditional backgrounds, predominantly kids of color, um, young people in their teens and 20s, to sort of give uh, young people a voice in the media and train us to work as journalists. Because particularly at that time, and we're talking the 90s at that time, there was all this hype about super predators and young people are killers and they're out there committing horrible crimes and we need to lock them up forever. And the notion between behind Youth Outlook, the training program I went through was like, hey, you're gonna have all this discussion about young people in the media. You're gonna portray us as thugs and super predators. We need to actually be part of that conversation. And so that was my pathway into journalism. And, you know, the only writing I had really done before that was zines. And um, I was pretty, pretty, uh, I had trouble putting a, a sentence together, I would say, and punctuating a sentence, you know, before that. Um, I had thought that the first stuff I would jump into is, is Danziger and stuff like that. But just thinking, just listening to you talk, I think it would be, you might be uncomfortable with the spotlight, but while you were in the barrier, your work there led to the exoneration of a couple of people on death row, yeah? They were, uh, they were serving life sentences in California prison, so they were serving real life sentences. Um, oh. And it was both for murder. And that's, this was John J. Tennyson and Antoine Goff. Yeah, and this was, 
in the early 2000s when I was reporting at The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And both of those guys were not going to get out of prison. They were absolutely not going to get out of prison. And they had been, they were both uh, Black men from Hunters Point, Bayview Hunters Point area in San Francisco. They'd been framed by two very prominent Black police officers, one of whom had become the chief of police at the time I was doing my reporting, years after the, the railroad job happened. And they were really looking at spending their entire lives. Oh, how long had they been in at that point? When I met John, I think, and I met John in prison, I think he had been down for at least 10 years at that point. And same with Antoine. Um, Yeah. And yeah, so they had been, and by the time they got out of prison, it was like 13, 14 years. I I hate, I think it's a sign of bad interviewing to interrupt somebody, but I'm educated, right? Uh, What put you on the scent? What put you on? What 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 sent you in that direction? What how the story happened? Yeah, you know, at the time, uh, and and still to this day, Matt Gonzalez, who is a has been a politician in San Francisco and also a defense lawyer and a public defender for many years. He's gone back and forth. He was working at the PD's office at that time. I was working at the weekly newspaper. We knew each other and lived a few blocks apart. And he said, "Hey." Um, take this or leave this, but my boss has this case and it's haunting him. And it's the first homicide trial he did as a young lawyer. He believes his guy got a bad deal. He believes his guy was, is innocent and was wrongly convicted. He thinks his guy was framed up and you should go see him. He's got a whole box of documents that he'll let you go through. And Matt's boss was Jeff Adachi, who would become the public defender for San Francisco and become kind of a iconic criminal justice reformer. And uh, I went over to Jeff's office at the the Hall of Justice, uh, across the street from the Hall of Justice in San Francisco. I'm pretty sure I rode my BMX bike there. I was going to say, how long have you been reporting at this time? Yeah, I would, not that long. I was in my 20s. And I, I'm pretty sure I rode my BMX bike there while listening to Obituary on a <laughs> man. And I'm pretty sure that I had like a pile of, of um, dreads at that point um, in my life. So I, I remember going there and he, he had this, this whole collection of files and he just said, look, here are all the problems in this case. Here's the stuff I haven't explored. I didn't do a perfect job as an attorney. I messed stuff up, but you can look at everything I, I put together, all my files. And if you think there's a reason to investigate further, do it. And um I was fascinated. I teamed up with a, a private investigator named Ed Owasa, and we cruised through all the um, all the projects in San Francisco, looking for people that we thought that we'd been turned on to could exculpate John Tennyson and Antoine Goff, the men who'd been wrongly convicted, or we believe perhaps had been wrongly convicted of what was a pretty awful shotgun murder in the Sunnydale housing projects in San Francisco. And, you know, eventually we got people to come forward and say, I was there. This is what happened. Those guys were not there. This is who did it. And it took a long time. I think, yeah, it took a bunch, a bunch of months working on that story to get to that point uh, where we could publish something. Uh, And that published, I think it was 2001. And what was really cool was, there's just that there was this serendipitous, remarkable 
uh, like thing that happened. It's like something that would happen in a scripted movie that people would think is bullshit. But mm-hmm. John Tennyson's brother, Bruce, parked cars in San Francisco and he parked cars in a lot right next to uh, the offices of prominent attorneys. And the morning the story came out and it was in the Guardian on the front page, he took this, the newspaper and he put it under the, the windshield wipers of every car in the parking lot. And that afternoon, a couple of the lawyers came out and they said, Bruce, your brother's in prison. Like we read this story. Right. It's like he got a bad deal. You never told us this. And he said, yeah, I just parked your cars. I don't tell everybody this, but right. I thought I'd share. And they took up pro bono investigating what had happened from that point. And those were attorneys from the firm Kecker and Van Nast in San Francisco. And that was uh, Elliot Peters and Ethan Bala. And they just did this amazing investigation that followed up on the work that I had done. And they were able through, through their research and their lawyering to extricate both John and Antoine from, from the criminal justice system. That took about three more years. I got to think something like that and something with such a sizable result had to play a role in cementing your career. Yeah. I mean, the thing for me at that time, I remember when, I remember when John's mom called me and told me he was coming home. And I remember seeing John and Antoine and Bruce and their families after they got home. And, and, uh, for me, I, it was like, oh, this is the first useful thing I've done in journalism. Right. Like this is like, this is the first um, tangible and meaningful thing I've done in my career. Mm-hmm. And the, the, that's the thing with with journalism is there's aspects about it that are great, but it's a very um, it's a very circuitous uh, vocation to take to affect change, right? Right. And if, if your goal is like, I want to do something in the world that changes material conditions in some ways that, that makes the world slightly more just and better. Journalism is like, you know, uh, overwhelmingly the things that you create, the films, the stories, the magazine articles, the books, people will read them. They'll be like, wow, that's really interesting. Or wow, that's fucked up. But nothing is going to change. Well, Adam, a- right off the bat, I need to give you credit for completely fucking up the outline that's taped up above my computer because these, no, these philosophical questions and these points of debate were kind of what I was going to close with, but you're stepping right into it. So I'd kind of like to sidetrack and ask you a couple questions of what you just said inspires and then circle back to a couple more stories and circle back to your upcoming film. You good with that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So I interviewed you years ago. You know, I, I, I exploited the fact that, that we, that we were old punkers and, uh, I kind of put it to you, the notion like sort of the, about the cross-section between activism and journalism. And you said something to me along the lines of that any agenda or any, you know, sort of an established perspective going in is contrary to or an obstruction or, or obstructs good journalism. I don't know if you remember that, right? Yeah. Well, in talking to another journalist, in talking to Spencer Ackerman um, from, from, I think he's with The Beast right now, uh, he said that the notion of objective journalism is bullshit and the, simply and the way he framed it and what was interesting and why I'd like to hear your take on it is he said there is an editorial action simply in choice of subject. Matter. Right. And that right. you establish perspective simply by what you want to investigate. How do you feel about that? 
Yeah, so I think they're actually kind of different questions, right? So sure, I think, run with it. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think there's there's a my point is not about like journalistic objectivity and that debate. Um, my point that I made to you, and it's still my point, is when I when I start doing reporting on a story, I I start doing the reporting, I start developing a thesis, I start. Um, assessing the evidence that I have. And my problem is if I'm not very, very honest with myself and what I'm seeing as I collect this evidence, as I talk to people, as I look Mm -hmm. at documents, if I go with my gut or my heart or my feelings, then I make mistakes about how to assess that work. And I end up- You paint it? Through your lens, yeah. Or? Like I'm, I constantly have to be cutting against my own theses and my own beliefs and my own instincts in my reporting to say, okay. is what I think is going on here really what's going on? Right. Um, you know, when I did this story about the stories about Antoine and John being possibly framed by the police, and later being fairly conclusive that yes, they were framed by the police, my immediate instinct was to be suspicious of the police and be skeptical about what had happened to them. But I also like had to check that and really assess where does the evidence lead me? Where does where do the facts that I can amass lead me? Right. Because it could turn out that these guys actually are not particularly nice guys. And they actually sure. did do this horrible shotgun homicide. So I want to be clear headed throughout. And even if my initial instinct after having gotten all this information and having talked to very persuasive attorneys is like, yo, maybe these guys got hosed. It's like, I need to be very clear headed when I, when I look further and look at the evidence and, and chase it, it down. And that's the thing, like I tell people like people, uh, you know, to jump ahead. I, when I was doing reporting in new Orleans about where we're headed next anyway so go ahead okay about the police killing people about racist vigilantes shooting people shooting black unarmed black men um my people told me compelling stories people said this is what happened this is what the police did this is what this white racist dude did and it all felt very compelling and and i was like wow this is messed up but every step along the way I wanted to fact check everything anybody told mm-hmm. me. I didn't, I don't just trust people because I might be sympathetic to their point of view because I might like them because they might seem like cool people. I, I expect that like two things will happen. People are bad um, at curating their own histories and they tend to like not always have perfect recall of their own, the events that transpired in their lives. Dude, and the, two, the, people just go ahead. Any oral history proves that. Yeah, That's yeah, exactly. If you read medical records, and I do in my work sometimes, they'll say the patient claims a history of X, Y, or Z. And that's because the doctor says, you know, this person probably got right describing what illness they had when they were 12, but maybe they got it wrong. And we are, we are imminently fallible narrators of our own lives. And in the same way, as a journalist, I hope that people are telling me what they think is accurate, but I'm open to the fact that they may get the facts wrong in their own stories and that they may not always be telling me the truth. So like in a story like that, where there's, for example, if we start with the allegation that 
Well, well I'm, I'm going to interrupt you okay. just because I want no, I want to launch you into it. So as if I'm asking you about it, let's not assume that anybody knows what we're talking about. Right. And if you could just flat out tell what you were, what you were working on post Katrina, you know, what the actual story of you know, the Danziger bridge story was all of it. If you could give them as much as meat as that on as possible, it's fascinating stuff. And it informs what you just said about your method of pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the work that I did in New Orleans that started around 2007, so a couple of years after Hurricane Katrina, was inspired by um, a couple of people. And one was a guy named Malik Rahim, who was a former Black Panther who used to live in the Bay Area and was living in New Orleans that I spoke to. Uh, and the other one was Rebecca Solnit, who is a writer and historian. And Rebecca was down there and she was talking to Malik and Malik was saying, hey, you know, there was this crazy thing that happened after the storm. You know, these crazy white people were coming around attacking black folks in this particular neighborhood that is largely white neighborhood. And they both said, look, can you look into this? And Rebecca said, I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm a essayist and a historian, and this is not my beat, but can you do this? And I went down there, I thought, okay, you know, in three weeks, I'll decide whether this really happened or not, or whether this is like an apocryphal tale from a traumatic time. That's the sort of mindset I, I'm going to come into a, a story with. Um, and I went down there, and what I found very quickly was, yeah, this probably did happen, there probably were armed gangs of white men that attacked black men uh, for no, absolutely no reason. And the deeper I got into it, I found the people who had been attacked by the white gangs and been mm -hmm. shot. I found the doctors that operated on them. I found the law enforcement officers and um, institutions that ignored them. And then I, as I'm doing all this reporting, one of the surgeons I talked to said, hey, you know, the guy you asked me about, Donnell Harrington, who'd been shot in the throat with a shotgun and nearly died, black man shot by a racist white dude. Uh, the doctor said, you need to look deeper. He's not the only person that came in here with gunshot wounds. And the other people that came into my hospital with gunshot wounds were shot by the police. So you need to dig into that. And as I did, I ended up digging into the story of a guy named Henry Glover, who was shot to death by the police. And then they set his body on fire and burned up the car that he had been in to try to cover it up and left his burnt remains, his charred remains on the banks of the Mississippi River. I dug into several more shootings that involved predominantly Black men who were shot by the police after Hurricane Katrina um, unlawfully or under dubious circumstances. And that body of reporting led to wholesale reforms at the, at the New Orleans Police Department. It led to a whole string of criminal prosecutions by the convictions. Yeah, yeah, there were convictions. There was multiple convictions. There were also convictions that were overturned. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, there were um, there was a consent decree, a federal consent decree. So basically, the federal courts ex exercised massive oversight out over the police department. Most of the top officials within the police department were forced out. 
um, it was a massive, massive reckoning for the city of New Orleans. And the specifically on the Danziger Bridge story, and, and I covered that some, and I covered it in the film that we made for Frontline called Law and Disorder. But the best reporting on that was done by my friends at the Times, Picayune, um, the daily newspaper there. Um, so I did, Laura, Laura Maggi is one of the ones that did that really great work. My stuff was focused on, on a handful of other cases. So it was focused on Henry Glover's killing, it was mm -hmm. focused on the killing of a white middle-aged homeless man and the police lied to his family after shooting him in the back with a, an assault rifle. And I called them and I said, hey, do you know how Matt died? And they said, oh, the, you know, they told us he drowned. I said, no, he didn't drown. He was shot to death. And they so were just- you were, the, you were the one who, wow. You were the yeah, conduit of that information. They, and on, they, on that intimate level. I don't mean in terms of- public No, stuff. no, it was, it was very intense. And, um, you know, there was another, there was another man, Keenan McCann, African-American man who was shot repeatedly by police officers with, with assault rifles while trying to get water from a, a water truck. And they made up this whole story that he'd had a gun on him. And he didn't. Does it, go, does it go outside of interviewing you about journalism to ask you why you thought this happened? Why, I, mean, I, thought, why I thought it happened? Yeah, I mean, there's some really basic answers you yeah, can yeah, get. Yeah. In the midst of very trying times and tragedy, a preoccupation with that particular kind of violence, who the fuck has time to be that awful during that shit? Yeah, I mean, there's a, that's a real good question, man. And remind me, I need to tell you about Henry Glover's family in a minute, but what I'll tell you about that, about that yeah. question, right? Is like, I mean, I hate to interrupt your flow. So no, 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 it's all good. Here's the thing with, with New Orleans, man, is um, the police there were at that time quite possibly the most lawless, most corrupt, most degenerate really? big law enforcement agency in the country. And besides the issues that they had um, with racism, which was pernicious and deep-seated, um, they were just absolutely lawless. They could do whatever they wanted to do. And okay. people feared them. There was no respect. It was all terror, man. And it's like, it's a level of terror that you don't see in other places, even other tough big city communities. You just don't see it. Um, so this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. The guys I'm talking about who did two of these shootings, um, one of them was a lieutenant. He's since lost his job. Mm -hmm. He was notorious in the hood. He was notorious with, in the black community there for just being vile. He um, liked to do things like this. He was a drug task force cop and a SWAT team cop. He would do things like this. He uh, was on a case where he was investigating the theft of a police cruiser. And, and from that police cruiser, a shotgun, license plates, body armor, uh, a flashlight had been stolen. And so he went to the apartment on the second floor of this building where he believed the uh, young man who had stolen this stuff was. The young man wasn't there. So the cop, whose name was Lieutenant Dwayne Sherman, proceeded to um, have a female officer perform body cavity searches on all three of the female uh, in, the, in the apartment. One was a baby, one was a 20-something woman, and one was a grandma. And 
the women said, why are you doing this to the baby? Why are you doing this to any of us? We can't have a shotgun, a flashlight, license plates, or body armor in the cavities that you're having this woman search. But he thought that was a cool thing to do, apparently. And then he terrorized his family. The guy he was looking for wasn't there. Um, and the family says, yeah, after that, when he got done doing this incredibly dehumanizing uh, thing to us, he and his colleagues took all our furniture and threw it down the stairs and threw it out the windows of our apartment. And you would think this is like a hyperbolic thing. And for me, I, I'm skeptical. Did this really happen? You know, this, mm -hmm. is, this is a little extreme, but they uh, took pictures of all their furniture after it had been tossed. And they included all of this information in the, the lawsuit that they filed, um, which eventually they prevailed in. Eventually they won. Eventually the, court, the city said, yeah, it seems like something bad happened here. We're gonna give you some money. It was tens of thousands of dollars, not the hundreds or millions of dollars that they should have had, hundreds of thousands or millions. And the officer in question received no meaningful discipline. He was a cop uh, and he goes on a few years later in the Katrina time to then shoot multiple people. So when you have a culture like that, right. that is like, so corrupt, so lawless, so awful. When you have a moment like Katrina and you're a police officer and your belief is, oh, these thugs, these subhumans, these people that I disdain greatly are looting our great town. They're stealing shit. They're doing things I don't approve of. I'm going to get revenge. That, that's what's happening. That's what's yeah. happening at that time. And these officers had been sent a message for a very long time that they could do whatever they wanted, including killing people. You know, for that project, I interviewed a guy who had been a New Orleans police officer and was also robbing banks while he was on the force. And he went to prison for it. And I interviewed him after he got out of prison. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we would plant drugs on people. We would plant guns on people. And he told me, yeah, there were people that I killed that I have never- When you, I interviewed you a long time ago and you talked about wishing you could see, unsee certain things, unlearn certain yeah. things, being exposed to certain types of people. When you sit in a room with someone like that or when you sit in conversation with someone like that, is, it a di is there a different degree of humanity that you sense? I mean, or is there, you know, is that just a picture? I, I hear these stories and these people seem to me like they would almost have to be machines. You know, I, I think, I, I think about it in maybe different terms. But maybe like, that's a, maybe, maybe that's a Hollywood type notion. People... No, no. I mean, I think it, I think about it like this. I think about it like um, people get damaged. People get incredibly traumatized. People live in environments and workforces and cultures where really shitty behavior is rewarded and applauded. Mm -hmm. And I think that they get profoundly warped. Okay. And I don't, I don't tend to see it as like, a, as like people losing their humanity. What I see it tend to see it as is people um, basically living by the norms of deeply deformed institutions and cultures. And that's the thing about a place like New Orleans, and this applies to many things, is there was no one there saying, hey, there was no, there was not a culture within the police department saying to other cops, like, 
if you're beating on somebody, that's not something that that's cool. That's not something I approve of. If you're framing someone, clearly that's not cool. If you kill someone, clearly that is not cool. There was no culture of opprobrium for lawless behavior. There was celebration of lawless behavior. That was the norm of the culture. You said you said uh, some convictions were overturned. Yeah, you know, and that was the thing. And with that, that was like, so this is like the the journalism thing. Like you have, you do it, you engage in a career that it's unlikely you'll have any impact in the real world. Sometimes your work does have some impact. Right. And sometimes we, we learn that impact gets undone. And with the reporting that I did that led to criminal cases, it led to criminal cases against eight men. One was a civilian engaged in these hate crime shootings white vigilante, white racist vigilante. The other seven were current or former police officers. And um, several of those guys got their cases overturned or their sentences reduced after being adjudicated. Some of them were acquitted at trial. And I think a thing that it reminded me of, particularly about the South is, and it's true in many places is, the level of judicial scrutiny and review given to cases involving law enforcement where police officers or other law enforcement agents are criminal defendants. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very high level of scrutiny and review. Like the courts really pay attention to every, every issue, every fact in a case. If you look at the judicial review given to cases where an individual is just an average individual and perhaps they happen to be black, then you do not have that same level of scrutiny and skepticism from the courts yeah. at all. And it, it in a, particularly in the South, it's shocking, but you yeah. find that anywhere in the U.S. Right. The thing um, I was going to tell you, I'm black, well, but the thing I was going to tell you. No, I'm, well, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I told you before we started taping that this is incredibly well-timed in my life, but no, I'm, I'm loving it. You're delivering. So go ahead. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Other thing I was going to tell you about that whole raft of reporting, and that that went on for three years. It was not three weeks. I went down there. I thought it'd be three weeks. It was three years. Um, you know, at one point, as I was investigating the killing of Henry Glover, who was a civilian black man who was killed by the police, he was the guy whose body was burnt up. I remember, I I remember going to just the beginning of reporting reporting that. And, go, and uh, I called, at that point, I had a report that there had been some strange incident where a civilian was shot by police, where maybe his body was burnt up. I had his autopsy report, which I'd had to sue the coroner to get. And it, he was the only guy who died after Hurricane Katrina in, a, in fire. Uh, I read a thousand, about a thousand autopsy reports from Katrina. I was the first person to ever, outside of the coroner's office, to ever read those. And... Um, I contacted Henry's mom and her name's Edna and she lived in this um, public housing development on the West Bank of the Mississippi. And I said, hey, my name's AC. I'm a reporter. I'm down here reporting on what happened after Katrina and seems like this strange thing happened to your son. I'm sorry to bring it up, but you know, could we talk about it? I'd like to, to hear about it. And I figured she would say there would be some logical explanation about how a man ends up in ashes after Hurricane Katrina, that it's not the nefarious explanation, that it's a simple 
explanation that's not nefarious. And I remember going to her tidy little row house and I thought it would just be her. And when I opened the door, all of Henry's aunties and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters were there and they were all packed into her little house. And this was a man that was deeply loved and deeply cared for. And they all thought I could tell them what happened to Henry. They wanted me to tell them. They thought I could bring the answers to them at that point. Mm -hmm. I thought they were going to give me the answers. And they say, it was a messed up thing. He crashed his car, a telephone, a power line fell down. It caught on fire. You know, it, it wasn't a suspicious thing, but they said, no, we think the police killed Henry. We think the police burned his body up. We think they covered it up, but we're not sure how it all happened. And we want answers and we want your help. Can you help mm -hmm. us? find out what really happened to Henry. Please right. just be there for us because the police won't tell us anything. The coroner is lying to us. Nobody gives a shit about what happened to Henry. No one gives a shit about our lives. So can you please help us? And so that was part of my motivation to do this reporting. And this is how it really happens, right? It's like many, many months into doing that reporting, I remember talking to Henry's sister and Patrice and her saying, where's the story? Like, do something, like make something happen, make journalism, that's what you do. Like, I'm living this life of tragedy and you do journalism, do some journalism. I said, I just don't have everything I need yet, but I'll have a story soon, I swear, I'm sorry it's taking so long. Right. Finally, she just said, you know, I don't even want a story anymore. I just want Henry back. I just want him to be alive. I just want to talk. Just yeah. bawling and I, and I, and I, that is, <laughs> that's my life. And yeah. eventually, you know, eventually story came out. There were, you know, major actions. The federal government, FBI agents came to their house and said, hey, now you tell us what happened to Henry. Let's, let's dig right. into this. Um, people actually paid attention. They got a civil attorney and sued the city, uh, sued the police. But for that moment, I felt like, yeah, I'm letting down these very traumatized people have had just horrible experiences and I understand why they're upset, you know? Um, yeah, it was. It was I, I have I'm, the two questions I plan to interview and the interview with will make more sense now when I ask, um, we're not there. Uh, so you, you've made vague alliteration to filmmaking a few times when you've been talking already today. And I mean, I know, I know the ProPublica work, everything else, but I know that You've done more and more film. And a funny thing was back when I was doing a little bit of freelance journalism, more like human interest stories and stuff, you were very outspoken with me. It may have been when we cut when we when we cut a baseball game, but you were like, there's no money in print reporting and in this, and you know, you got to do something else to make a living. And the only place where there's anything even survivable going on is film. Was that at all a motivation in it? Or is it do how is it that there's so much film now? I'm glad there is. Right. But what was right. the evolution? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, and so it goes like this, right? Um, I spent many, many, I spent like 10 years writing for alternative weeklies. Mm -hmm. I did dailies, I did magazines, I did all that stuff, daily newspapers. And I could see that that industry was um, shrinking and shrinking right. and shrinking. And 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when I started making films, I felt like, hey, you know, in this media landscape, 
you need to diversify not just your storytelling skills, not just the, the, the subjects you're interested in, but your the platforms on which you're telling them. And I thought like, I should figure out this radio thing. I should figure out this filmmaking thing. I should figure out other things because it may be in a few years, nobody wants to pay anything for text or for print. Right. And that was, so economics was absolutely part of the reason why I was drawn that way. Absolutely. But also it's like always cool to do something new, you know, learn something new. Have you now, the, it, now, why, it, why is there money in that now? Um, I think it's a little bubble, you know, like yeah. there's a bubble around money going out to streaming services that are all starting up spending money to produce nonfiction content. And that content is having a moment, people are watching it, and it's also much cheaper to produce than scripted content. Television is perspective inducing. Like, like just say within the, within the interaction of you and I or people that we have in common, maybe sometimes you won't know them. Um, when I started telling friends that I was doing this interview, or when I would like make little leaks about it on Instagram, people, friends of mine from punk rock, who I don't think you know, but you would know of them, people like say Billy Rubin from Half Off, mm -hmm. people like that, right? They were amazed that I had that access and that I was doing the interview with you because they were moved by, and I guess maybe a little bit addicted to your, to, to your work because it was some of the grittiest and most direct out there. That's television. Yeah. That's something that that's, that's an impact or a recognizability or a familiarity that wouldn't have happened in print. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I think, I think the other corollary really right is podcasting and, yeah. and radio that they're, is sometimes a, a more direct, immediate connection mm -hmm. that you develop with audiences through radio, podcasting, film. Mm -hmm. And I think television, I think it's harder to develop that through writing. And it's particularly in the traditional sort of storytelling straitjacket that American journalism is in, you know, which is, uh, you know, it's sort of what, what Spencer was talking to you about that has this sort of hyper-objective, um linear to it and is told at a distance rather than close up right um that's, so, a, that's a thing like to, to do the height the objective thing i think very often in my work i try to say hey this is my subjective experience of what i'm seeing and what i'm feeling and tell you whether it's my writing oftentimes or in the television like this is what i am thinking this is what i'm feeling and i try to kind of overcome that and say look um, yeah, like, this is who I am. I'm going to have, I could be getting this wrong. This is like what's propelling me at this moment, but you're going to know what it is, you know. You and I are taping this episode on this particular day so that I can drop it the day before your next film airs. And that would be American Insurrection, yes? Yeah. On yeah. Frontline. Um, one of the more, for the rest of my life, I'm going to know where I was on January 6th. Um, a crazy year, an insane moment in American culture, and you're going to do a big piece of documenting it. Uh, so let's go ahead and tell us about it. Tell us about the film. Yeah, you know, I mean, I didn't want, you know, I did police accountability. I did policing stories, criminal justice stories. I've done a bunch of different things. I did a bunch of reporting on white supremacists, hate crimes, domestic terror groups and so forth and um i didn't really want to be on that beat anymore honestly yeah. I, I was like oh, i don't really want to do this and then 
my boss at Frontline, um, Rainey Aronson Rath, like called me and uh, contacted me after uh, the first presidential debate of the last election cycle. And that was the presidential debate in which the Proud Boys came up. I was going to say they can loosely be referred to as debates for Christ's sake. Yeah, right, right. Okay. And my, my boss at ProPublica, Steve, was also very tuned into what was happening in the election at that time. And they both said like, hey, you know, would you go back and start covering this stuff again? It's a whole new context. It's a whole new um, right. era. You know, it's maybe the end of an era. It may be <laughs> the midpoint of an era. Let's Let's see what's happening. And so that's how I jumped back onto it. And really, I would say to sort of preface what'll be in the film, kind of one of the things that's happened in the last few years is the overt, obvious white supremacist movement has kind of shrunk. It has engaged in acts of terror rather than political protests or above ground actions. And so that's what happened with the shooting in Pittsburgh in the Tree of Life. That's what happened at the synagogue outside of San Diego. That's what happened in El Paso. That's what happened in Christchurch. But while the obvious white supremacists were kind of going underground, the groups that sort of surrounded them, the, all the other far-right actors were coming into the streets more and more. And that's, those are the, the groups that you really see on January 6th uh, storming the Capitol. And yes, there was a smattering of neo-Nazis and white supremacists there as well. But it was sort of these groups that were, had been adjacent to the white power movement Okay. that are out there at the forefront um, on that day. Do you think that this is an undercurrent that was just made digestible by having to have, having to have a, a front man or a salesperson in the White House? Here's the thing. The type of things that I hear coming out of the mouths of the far right, even just rank and file far right people interviewed by mainstream news channels, right? Mm. My grandmother sounded like that my entire life, as did her friends, as did, did a great number of people of a certain generation or in county where I grew up. But it wasn't something that went on in polite conversation. Well, in, in the last three, in the last five years, it's been amazingly over, uh, above ground. Um, did it grow or did it just become fashion? You know, it's hard for me to say. Like, my perspective is probably going to be, it's probably not stuff people would, yeah, people didn't really talk like that around me, but, right. um, you know. If you're trying to point out that you and I don't look alike and we did grow up in the same town, you're correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. But, you know, it's more like this. It's like, I really think that when I interviewed, when I've interviewed these guys, whether they're in the white power scene or whether they're in these movements like the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, the American Guard that sit right next to them. They all say that Trump was a catalyst to them and, and like motivation for them to be out doing the activism that they were doing. So I think, yeah, absolutely. A lot of these currents were lurking underneath the surface for many, many years for since before this country was a country, right? But I also think that there is nobody else that uh, that the main the person that has propelled these movements 
to the, the place that they've gone that have galvanized people that have pulled tens of thousands of people into the streets. That was clearly the former president, you know, and that's what people told me that were in those movements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that the thing for me in talking to those people is not to give them a platform, but to understand that, yeah, the question you just asked, you know, where are they coming from? Like, is it Trump that's doing this? Is it something else? Like, and to sort of have a better understanding on who these, what these movements are about, you know. Well, I have this instinctive need or desire to believe that one man, and particularly not one man who I find so, in my perception, limited intellectually, tasteless, and everything else, that one man wouldn't have the power to birth that. You know, like I, I, it's very hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that he was really the catalyst, or whether he's just whether he's just the paper mache parade float for it. Another way to think about it would be like this. With people saying, look, I always had these feelings, but Mm -hmm. here was the guy who was saying the things that I felt and he was making it okay to say them. And he was saying, you know, come out of the closet, come out of the woodwork, be the um, person that you want to be. And if that means offending people, if that means engaging in uh, xenophobic, Islamophobic, racist talk, then do it. And so it's perhaps it's some of both. It's like, you he's, know, well, he's not intellectually impressive, but he forgives scratching the itch. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, dude, a lot of people that I meet, like that's, they don't want an intellectually impressive guy. They want a guy that speaks their language. Right. You know, they want a guy that they relate to, right. that they that's down for pro wrestling, you know, and wants to put, you know, ketchup on steak. I mean, and like, I, I should also oh, say- The like, second half of that analogy was brilliant, by the way. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that, but I mean, I, I'll also say that in the course, so the film that we've made looks at sort of the movements and the actors that were in the streets and all everything that leads up to January 6th. And so that's militias, that's the Boogaloo Boys. Right. Um, the Proud Boys and these other sort of ultranationalist street fighters. And um, in some ways, I came to see it as, in many ways, as a cult, you know, that, that the devotion, the intense, um, the intense connection that people had with the president, their, um, belief their belief in the things that he said even when they clearly were not true and could be easily disproven it's all the kind of stuff that makes more sense when you think about it in the context of a a cult leader and a cult follower and it, it would be obviously that's a remarkable sort of cult leader who does most of their proselytizing through tweets but in some ways i think that's what you get um and what you're looking at like how else do you explain QAnon? Like, I, dude, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also say, like, you know, we went to these Trump rallies in Michigan, where the president, the then president, was speaking in these other places, and a- along with the people that we met, who were absolutely terrifying, who were uh, unarguably hyper racist, who yeah. were girding, who were plotting the overthrow of the government, uh, particularly if it became run by somebody not named Donald Trump, we met these people who would say to us, look, uh, I, 
I voted Democrat my whole life. Um, I work in a factory in Michigan. I feel like either party has exported my job for the last 30 years. They've exported every working job and I don't trust either party, but this guy Trump came along and he said, working man, working woman, I care about you and I'm going to bring jobs back to America. And that's what I care about. And, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't argue with that, that like that people in those circumstances, people working factory jobs, people working um, manufacturing, people working, labor jobs that had they been ignored, had they been forgotten by both parties, had they been the victims of a corporate globalization in which their jobs were exported? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so, so I was surprised at the, you know, there were were definitely people that I felt like, I don't agree with you about many, many things, but um, I understand some of your attraction to this guy who I find. That's a retained skill set. What? Your, Your ability to do that on the job that's a that's a that's an that, that's a skill set you've developed because yeah. I, I know your i know your passions well enough to at least the kid i run, ran with would have had a hard time not pushing back back on that almost instantaneously yeah yeah and i mean i should contextualize it that like yeah. at the same rallies people were threatening to kick our asses people people no, hated us it. Yeah. we worked for the, we worked for the lying media people were um making overtly racist some people were making overtly racist comments you know and so it's like i'll contextualize it but i also like have to acknowledge that i do think that both that the whole political system had failed a lot of people who are not particularly who are decent people mm-hmm. Interesting. And, you know i'm gonna wrap this up very soon and where i want to go on exit i want to ask you two specific questions that only have to do with journalism as it has impacted you, but have more to do with the personal realities of Adam Clay Thompson. And I hope that's okay with you. That's fine. Okay. The yeah. first thing being you out of necessity have to live a very private life. I won't call it secretive or anything like that. And you, you and I discussed the parameters of conducting this interview, but in general, by virtue of the cages you've poked and the, bear, the bears that you've wrestled with, you have to be careful how you live. Is it worth it? Uh, you know, so there's, a um, so my family and my, my company, we got doxxed, uh, hacked and then swatted by Nazis. And, um, one of those guys is getting sentenced this month in federal, federal court, you know, so when the SWAT team shows up at your house or your office with their guns drawn Mm -hmm. and they've been told that you just killed your whole family or you killed all your coworkers, it's not a good thing, you know, right. it's not a good thing. And so, well, hence my question. Yeah. And so, so yeah, like, um, I, I, yeah, I feel like I have to be, um, very careful and try to be as smart as possible about my personal safety and my family's safety and my coworkers' safety at this point. Is it worth it? The unfortunate thing I would say is that, in this era we're living in, mm-hmm. um, there are so many people that have had similar experiences who are not even journalists, that there's okay. somebody that said something online, there's somebody that posted a video, there's somebody that filed a lawsuit, there's somebody that did whatever, that we're living in a moment where it's very easy to be abusive and awful to one another. And there's a lot of that. Agreed, yeah. um, I don't, you know, 
it's like, if I had to go back, some days I'm like, yeah, I should do a different, I should do something different with my life that like doesn't lead to death threats and doesn't lead to people pointing guns at you. you right. Know? right. Man, <laughs> but, I really miss food, not bombs. Man. Yeah, but I don't know. I, the problem is I just don't know what it would be. So, right. you know. Um, well, here's my, here, here would be my take to stroke you a little bit. For the rest of the world, for the rest of us, the net positive is obvious. And there is gratitude that there are people like you. I cannot imagine, and I lead a very solitary life, but I cannot imagine putting myself through that simply based on principle. So I'm kind of outing myself there. Um, you're to be commended. Well, thank you. My final question, right, was sort of loose when I wrote it down. I always put, I limit myself to four short pages of notes above the computer when I do these, right? And the last thing I have written there um, made even more sense to me that it came to me after you started talking about sitting in that room with Glover's family, right? Um, a lot of ugliness, a lot of painful realities, a lot of things that can disappoint you and your fellow human beings. Is it ever too much? I mean, has it ever just gotten the better of you and taken you into places you just desperately need to be out of between your own ears? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the question just says, is it ever too much? But yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Look, like I was saying, I read a thousand autopsy reports and right. that's a lot. That's a lot, you know, and uh, most of my work for my entire career has involved looking at pretty extreme human suffering and human um, pain. And that sucks. That part of it sucks. And I feel bad for re-traumatizing the people that I interview who lost people like their brother, Henry Glover. Uh, I feel uh, like I'm absorbing the pain of the people that I meet. I feel, you know, like you look at these pictures from crime scenes, you look at this stuff and it doesn't come out of your head, it stays there. Um, and so, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a traumatizing and damaging job for sure. And it's given me, I think, some perspective on, on the way other professions that place people uh, right up, right in the sort of crucible of human suffering, how they affect and, and damage their practitioners of those professions, whether it's being uh, in the medical, uh, you know, being a doctor or a nurse, or ambulance driver, police officer, even firefighter, you know, all these sort of jobs soldier and mine is like out of all them is very minor you know the the things that i see these to your own perspective i just think are, it's different are minor to, to those kind of those kind of traumas but it gives me just a little bit of window into what people can experience it's more detailed i think i think it's different but anyway go on but you know the, the so so yeah man there's lots of times where i'm like man i, I i've seen too much i've right. like been i've seen too much suffering i've seen too much human behavior that i just can't understand or explain and can't grapple with um but the only thing i can do at this point in my life is i come home and i'm i'm happy to talk to you and it's it's enjoyable to talk to you but when i come home from work when i get done working i don't talk about work <laughs> i don't talk about work at all it's just I, I can picture that yeah and you know i 
try to be present with my family. I try to be mm -hmm. present with my friends and I try to put that, the work hat back on when I go back to work. I don't watch, you know, I've, I very, very rarely watch violent television. I don't do any of that stuff because it, it, it's like when you've seen somebody get killed, you don't, you don't want to watch that, you know. I would imagine it comes off kind of stupid. It's, yeah, yeah, but, you know, yeah, so that that's that, you know. Yeah. Well, listen, um, I had high expectations, and I was determined to do this, even though I haven't really been actively doing the podcast lately. And, you know, we're good enough with each other that I don't need to stroke it, but I'm just telling you, you thoroughly exceeded what I expected to get out of it, even though I had high expectations. There is a 0% chance when I have a strong excuse to that I'm not going to bug you to do this again. <laughs> Yeah, I would love okay. to do it. I would love to do it. And uh, sorry for kind of rambling all over the place. Your, re your read on it is wrong, but your humility is a good thing. So um, <laughs> anyway, Adam Thompson, episode 35 of Dano says so. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest, to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.